Welcome to Emerge Everywhere. I'm Jennifer Tesher, journalist turned financial health champion. As founder and CEO of the Financial Health Network, I've spent my career breaking down silos by engaging with innovators across industries. And now I'm sharing those conversations with you. Meet the forward-thinking leaders challenging the status quo and unleashing creative new ways of improving financial health by seeing their customers, employees, and communities in 3D. My guest today, Mayor Melvin Carter, has had a busy few months. As the first African-American mayor of St. Paul, Minnesota, he's led his city through a global pandemic, the tragic killing of George Floyd in neighboring Minneapolis, and the protests and civil unrest that followed. Mayor Carter has been a steady and resolute voice through it all, but his real strength lies in knowing not when to speak, but when to listen. Since he took office in 2018, he and his administration have focused on listening to those who least expect to be heard, the true experts in the community, the regular people of St. Paul. What he has learned from these listening sessions has fueled an agenda focused squarely on economic empowerment and opportunity for all. Mayor Carter, welcome to Emerge Everywhere. Thanks for having me on. I invited you to the show to talk about your approach to building a healthy city by building a financially healthy citizenry. And we're gonna get there in a minute, but we have to start with the racial reckoning that we're experiencing with uh, the killing of George Floyd in the city next door to yours as the spark. If people didn't know you before that day, they do now. Uh, George Floyd's death at the hands of police is only one of the most recent entries into a much bigger and longer narrative of systemic racism and violence towards black and brown people. But there was something about that moment that has defined the last few months and brought renewed attention to the Black Lives Matter movement. What have the last few months been like for you as the mayor of St. Paul and how's the city doing today? You know, the last few months have been really hard. Um, we have uh, hopefully come face to face with the reality that is not a new reality, that's an old reality, you know. Um, and I remind folks some that, you know, my father uh, and his father and his father and his grandfather could tell you about unarmed African American men who've lost their lives at the hands of law enforcement. Uh, and no one is held accountable. And so when we see that video, it's intriguing to me that half of us look at that video and go, that's uh, unbelievable. How in the world could that happen? And some of us look at that video and say, that's not unbelievable at all. Uh, it ha it's happened far too many times. Uh, and the truth is, short of us doing something fundamentally different as a country, uh, it'll continue to happen. Uh, and so we've been grappling with those realities. The, the great thing for St. Paul is, uh, you know, I'm grateful that we started before George Floyd's death. After he died, a few reporters would ask me kind of, what are you going to do differently now that George Floyd uh, was killed in the way that he was? And the truth is, we started doing it differently. That's why I ran for mayor in the first place. And so, you know, when I first got elected a couple, three years ago, we revised our police use of force policies back then. Uh, we completely rewrote kind of the, the rules of engagement for our canine unit back then. Uh, our police chief last year fired five officers for failing to intervene uh, in a, a assault in progress. So we've been making this journey in St. Paul for quite some time, uh, and we're sort of double, doubling down 
uh, now on it. But we're still a community in mourning. Uh, we're still a community that's sort of trying to find our collective breath uh, around this, around how to how to how to move forward. Uh, and I'll tell you, we're a community that has a whole lot of people who look at that video and say, uh, our officers included, who look at that video and say, that's not the world that we want to live in. And we have to work together to build a better world uh, and a better way for our community. And, and, and that's something that actually gives me some kind of peace uh, in, my, in, in my quiet time. Yeah. So this is, this is personal for you. I mean, you just mm -hmm. mentioned that you're a fourth generation St. Paul resident, right? The son of a police officer, the grandson of a Navy veteran who That's spent right. much of his life as a porter on the railroad. That's um, right. And you're a black man who has been stopped several times by police in your own city. Absolutely. Um, you have almost no choice when it comes to bringing your full self to work, right? Um, so how are you doing? How are you coping with your own emotions while shouldering their responsibility of leading and supporting city residents through their own grieving? You know, it's, it, it's a challenge. Our goal is just to be honest with people, to, to let people know that, you know, we're not okay. Uh, this is a really hard moment for us to go through. You're right. I've had a lot of those moments. We, we don't have time uh, in this podcast for me to tell you about all the times that I've been pulled over uh, by a police officer uh, here in Minnesota, going to school in Florida, driving in between in Alabama and Georgia for reasons that literally clearly had nothing to do uh, with my driving. Uh, and so, you know, this is a hard moment. It's a hard day today. You mentioned the events of the past few months. Uh, the, these past few hours have been challenging for us as we see the officers who broke into, who broke down Breonna Taylor's door, who fired uh, wantonly and blindly into her apartment, according to the police department, fired wantonly and blindly into her, into her apartment, uh, killing her, this uh, unarmed innocent young woman, uh, and somehow we have a justice system that lacks the capacity uh, to call that murder, to even try it as murder, to even press charges as murder, let alone find a conviction. And so, you know, that to me, you know, just today, we have our latest piece of evidence that we have an entirely different standard of justice in our country, a lack thereof, uh, where our police officers are concerned, and then we're, where you or I is concerned, because had you or I done one of those things, I can guarantee you we'd have been charged with murder uh, and we'd have to face kind of the, the consequences for those actions. So it's difficult. Uh, the, the fortunate piece, I think, is as we think back 10 years ago in America, uh, when you know we were debating whether or not we were suddenly this like post-racial uh, community, post-racial country, uh, it, it feels like we are solidly in the realm of post-post-racialism. Uh, where we know race is still a thing. We know disparities and inequities are undeniable in our community. We know that we can still predict the child's expected life outcomes more accurately by her race and her zip code than we can by her GPA. And hopefully we know we have to do something about it. So, you know, my goal is, uh, and our hope is, uh, that the silver lining uh, on these dark clouds is the future that we're gonna use this moment to build for our children. Yeah. So. I don't need to tell you that it's been a tough year because on top of this racial uh, reawakening, if you will, or reckon yep. reckoning, um, the COVID pandemic has cost 200,000 lives and counting in this country, disproportionately hitting uh, Black and Latinx people. And it's dealt a big blow to small business owners, to workers. Right. I looked up the stats for um, your county, Ramsey County. I think you've mm -hmm. 
um, had uh, almost 10,500 cases mm -hmm. of COVID so far. Um, what are your thoughts on where your city and the country is today um, as it relates to COVID and the economic fallout? And what are you focused on in particular over the next 90 days, given the end of the federal COVID stimulus programs? Uh, yeah, I, I think our it, it seems pretty clear. And like the 200,000 number that you just, uh, you just cited, uh, we have 200,000 deaths in America. Uh, it's probably cost us far more lives than that. As we think about the lives and the livelihood, the families, uh, the, the, the businesses uh, that this pandemic has just gutted from us, it seems really clear that our federal response, our national response has been woefully inadequate. Uh, as we look at the number of people who have contracted COVID, as we look at the number of people who have died from COVID, as we look at the impact on our, uh, on our national economy and local economies all over the country, uh, it's been woefully inadequate. Right here in St. Paul, uh, you're right, we've seen uh, people who have contracted the disease, uh, we've seen people who have died from the disease. Uh, then on top of that, we have sort of the compound impacts in that we have, I, I'm, I'm the mayor of a city of 315,000 people. We've seen over 80,000 applications for unemployment insurance since March 15th alone. Uh, we have families uh, who are literally, you know, professional families who've never worried about uh, food and, and, and shelter for their family before suddenly thrust into this space where those are the kind of things that they have to worry about. And I'll tell you, even those families who haven't been laid off or haven't lost their income or haven't had to close down their business know fully well uh, they are a hair's breadth away from having to, from, from potentially having to do that and seeing their livelihood kind of ripped out from underneath them. Our unsheltered homeless population uh, has, is, is literally more than 10 times larger in St. Paul today than it was just a year ago. So this is uh, fundamentally oh kind of snatched the rug out from under our entire economy. Uh, and one of the things that seems clear to me is it, it's not that a bunch of new things happened in 2020. It's that this pandemic uh, really exacerbated some existing weaknesses and lack of resilience in the way our whole economy is set up. If we don't know it by the end of 2020, God bless us, that anytime any family in our community, this is, I think, what 2020 has proven. If one family in our community can't afford to go to the doctor when they have symptoms, if one family in our community can't afford to pay the rent or the mortgage on a safe home that they can safely socially distance and shelter in place, if one family in our community can't afford to take a week off of work uh, to care for their child when their child gets sick, all of us are less safe. And you know that goes to this notion that I know you believe in of the interconnectedness of everything that goes on in community. And so uh, what we're focused on, uh, you know, we started this thing talking about uh, months ago, start talking about like how we recover from all this. I've stopped using the word recover uh, because that's just not enough. Recover to me says like, how do we get back to where we were six months ago or six years ago, or for some of us, six generations ago, right? Um, and the truth is going back won't take us there. Going back can only take us right back to the starting line that we were on when all this stuff started. We have to find a fundamentally new way of operating our economy. We have to find a fundamentally new way of inviting our neighbors, our kind of just real people in our neighborhoods to participate in our local economy. As we've seen this country shed millions of jobs over the past six months, uh, while our asset owning class uh, you know, experiences kind of uh, record-breaking gains in the stock market and billionaire wealth grows exponentially, uh, we're seeing, you know, people just gutted 
everybody I know is just worried and just stressed out. Uh, it's almost the point of uh, debilitation uh, because the money challenges right now are so pronounced for our country. So this has got to be about building a more resilient economy and learning not just how do we find our way to a vaccine for COVID, but how do we find our way to a vaccine uh, for our economy uh, in such a way that whenever the next virus hits or as you know, climate crisis uh, worsens uh, the state of emergencies that we experience in our country, we don't just find ourselves doing this exact same thing over and over again. Yeah. So aside from graduating from Florida A&M, um, you've got really deep roots in St. Paul. I think yeah. you and your family live in a house on the same block as the house you grew up in. And I'm the one who moved far. I moved around the corner. My sister lives next door. <laughs> what what's it, was it like to grow up in St. Paul? And what really inspired you to get involved in politics in the first place? I, I believe you were on the city council before you ran for mayor. I was. And before that, I was a community organizer and worked on campaigns and things like that. So I grew up in St. Paul. Uh, as you mentioned, I'm a fourth generation St. Paul resident. My father's a retired St. Paul police officer. Uh, my mother is a former entrepreneur, uh, former school board member, uh, former teacher who currently serves as the chair of our Ramsey County Board of Commissioners. Uh, and you know, so 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 we grew up in this community. And I always tell folks when I say I love this city, it's not like a uh, a newlywed love where I think everything is great and there's no problems. Uh, it's me declaring my love for a city that I, I know what our community's morning breath smells like, right? Uh, my uh, great-grandfather moved here from Texas from, you know, fleeing racial violence uh, of the Deep South. Uh, my grandfather owned uh, over half a dozen commercial properties on a street called Old Rondo, uh, which is St. Paul's version of a national story. Uh, this uh, thriving African-American business and cultural district that was uprooted to build a freeway. Uh, and my, our family's uh, family inheritance was gutted when that happened uh, as a result of uh, decision making, public decision making pro processes uh, that my grandfather, nor anyone he knew, was able to participate in. Uh, my father was one of our first, city's first African American police officers uh, who was hired onto our police department uh, after a lawsuit uh, required us to integrate our police department. And, you know, we've seen enough stories. Uh, about, uh, you know, some of those early integrators to know what that experience was like. Some of the earliest stories that I remember hearing uh, were about other officers, uh, so-called brother officers, who would tell him that there's no way they'd back him up in any circumstance because of the color of his skin. And then I grew up um, kind of in two worlds from professional parents uh, surrounded by adults who were, you know, determined to see us succeed, I would say, whether we wanted to or not. Uh, in our rec centers and in our schools and in our churches and in our community organizations. I grew up surrounded by those officers, those African-American officers from our neighborhood who came on the force with dad. Uh, and then I turned 16 and started meeting a whole lot of other officers in our community as well. And it became really clear that this is a community that has a lot of prosperity, has a lot of opportunity. It literally has limitless opportunity uh, to provide for those who have access to it. Uh, but then it also has some deep shadows in which uh, a whole lot of folks kind of end up getting stuck uh, and languishing in the shadows of the opportunity that we're creating. Uh, I, I, I decided to run for office city council uh, because we were building light rail and we were building a light rail line just two blocks away from that where that freeway is, one block away from where my home is. Uh, and uh, we were building this great line uh, that, you know, stopped, you know, our, our engineers would tell us uh, people are likely to 
walk uh, at least a half a mile to a quarter mile uh, to get to the stations. I always used to ask, is, are those August miles or January miles? And no one ever answered that question. <laughs> but suffice it to say, we built this line and at both ends of the line, because of that data, the stations were located on the plan a quarter mile to a half mile apart. You literally get to the boundaries of my neighborhood, the area I used to represent on the city council, and the stops were suddenly gonna be spaced a mile apart by our transit authority's own numbers. This investment would have actually, because we're gonna reduce the bus service on this same street. So the investment was actually going to reduce access. This billion dollar investment, it's the largest public works property uh, project in our state's history. And it was actually gonna result in less access to transit for my neighborhood. And that was so offensive to us, uh, but that's what happens when you have uh, public processes that don't include all the voices at the table. We can have a billion dollar transit investment that literally makes transit worse uh, for our most transit dependent populations. Uh, that's not good policy. That's not justice. That's not uh, uh, an equitable kind of way of going about it. Uh, and that's why I got involved in politics, because I thought there was a better way. Wow. That's an incredible story of um, the way in which systemic racism plays itself out, honestly. Mm -hmm. um, um, I, I, I'd like to think that no one sat around when they were planning that project and said, that's intentionally um, cut off access. I mean, right. maybe that happened, but nonetheless, it's still. I don't think it's about intentionality, Jennifer. I think, you know, one of the things that we rehearse here a lot is that every decision that's ever been made in the course of humanity has been made to benefit the decision makers. And so, you know, the folks at the table make the decisions that benefit them. Uh, and the folks who are not at the table don't get the opportunity to do that. And so this, that, that actually becomes one yeah. of the guiding principles of my administration uh, which is the belief that I'm the first African-American mayor of the city. I'm told I'm younger than some of the other ones. Uh, but for me to disappear in the city hall and in my little corner office in city hall, shut the door and make decisions by myself, uh, can't produce a radically new, uh, fundamentally new direction for the city because it would be more of the same. It'd be exclusive decision-making processes. So we build, you know, in, at, the, at the core of our work around equity, um, and I define equity not from the social justice movement, uh, but from my background in business school in corporate America, equity is a money word. Equity means ownership. And with ownership really comes two things. Uh, with ownership comes the ability to participate in decision-making processes, but then it also comes the ability to participate in an economy. If I own equity in a company and that company has a really profitable year, then I make some money. I, I get to participate in that economy. That's what's not happening right now, based on what we just talked about, about the combination, the, the, contrast between what the stock market is doing and what every main street in America is experiencing right now. And so everything that we do, if we're going to drive equity, it has to be about bringing people to the table, making sure that the voices who are traditionally not heard and who get, go traditionally ignored, that those are the voices we hear first and loudest in the processes. Uh, and that, has, uh, that approach has, uh, has, has yielded some really uh, incredible, uh, maybe surprising, uh, and I think uh, earth-changing uh, results for our city. Say a bit about how you go about doing that. In other words, making sure everyone's voices are heard. And maybe you can give an example of a result that ended up being surprising um, or not what one would have expected as a result of using that kind of process. Sure. So the, the guiding principles of our administration are equity, innovation, and resilience. I already defined uh, equity for you, uh, how, how we define it. 
Uh, resilience, we look at everything through like this notion of kind of resilience and sustainability, uh, first from a climate lens, uh, but thinking about how our budget is sustainable, how everything that we do uh, is done sustainability. Uh, the innovation piece is important. We have to constantly think and rethink the way that we do everything. Our belief is that our, our primary sources of innovative ideas are the people who live in this community and the frontline staff who serve them every day. And so we constantly go back to that group, no matter what it is that we're doing. Uh, when I first got elected, uh, instead of naming a kind of traditional tra transition team, uh, we invited 100 members of our community from every neighborhood, different ages, different races and cultures, um, including city employees and different folks like that, business leaders, uh, to participate in what we call our community-based hiring panels. And those community members went and uh, identified candidates. They went and uh, sourced resumes. They sorted those resumes. They decided who to interview. They did the first round of interviews and passed me a slate of uh, finalists uh, to consider. Every single director that we have hired, every single director in my cabinet has been through this process. Uh, and it has resulted in what our local news has said is the most diverse uh, cabinet, the most diverse administration that our city has ever seen. Uh, we do our budget the same way. Uh, I, I joke that you know if you if you put a math spreadsheet on uh, on a piece of paper and write game at the top, uh, you can get seventy people. Not in a COVID crisis, but before that, you can get seventy people to hang out with you in a brewery on a sunny Sunday afternoon and help you figure out what the what the city budget should look like, what the city budget should be. Uh, I think one of our kind of uh, uh, gold standard, our, our kind of gold cases about kind of the innovation that we've tried to do as a city uh, and the results that it's yielded is uh, we had a group of library users and a group of librarians, library staff, uh, come to us in my first year in office and say, look, like we got to rethink the way the library works. And I asked them what they meant. Uh, and we had this whole conversation about library fines, about late fines, when people bring books back late and the extent to which those late fines create a barrier uh, to free access to uh, information, uh, particularly in our lowest income neighborhoods. Uh, we realize that late fines don't do what we thought they do. People think late fines make people bring a book back, but the truth is late fines make people stay away from a library, oftentimes for years, if not for a lifetime. Every time I say that to a group of people, people start laughing because they know what I'm talking about from their own personal lives. And so we decided to eliminate late fines. Absolutely. We eliminated, yeah. We eliminated late fines in our in our public library. Uh, some of us weren't sure the sun would rise again the next morning, uh, but not only did the sun rise, in the first quarter of this new policy, because it was done in response, in direct response to what people were telling us, in direct response to what our frontline librarians were hearing, in the first quarter of this policy, immediately, we experienced a double digit increase in library use in all of our lowest income neighborhoods. And so that that's kind of what I'm fascinated with is, what are these things that we can learn about our own community if we listen to people in a way that we literally never have? What are the things that are actually relatively minor shifts in the way that we do business that can fundamentally transform the role of city government in people's lives and our ability to meet our mission? That's incredible. That's a great story. You know, I noticed that the accomplishments that you tout on the city's website um, are all related in some way really to the financial health of your residents. You just talked about eliminating late fees in public libraries, right? Not only does that bring people back into the system and giving them access to, you know, information uh, and literacy, uh, but it also has a financial implication, a positive Without financial a implication for people. You raised the city's minimum wage to $15 an hour. You reestablished the Affordable Housing Trust Fund. 
Um, you just created a guaranteed income pilot. Yep. Why were these among your earliest priorities? Certainly, it sounds like you were hearing from city residents um, that that was part of what was informing you. But these are all of a theme, I would say, these kinds of policies. And I'd love to hear more about uh, sort of how this was part of your vision uh, when you ran a couple of years ago. You know, it's a part of the vision that people built together, that we built together. So when I first ran for office, we spent, uh, before we even started the campaign, we spent a year and a half just listening to people. We called it Imagine St. Paul and just sat in living rooms and coffee shops across the city and asked people just kind of simple questions like, uh, what are your happy memories from childhood? Why are you raising your children here? Why are you, uh, why'd you choose St. Paul to open or grow your business? Uh, what are your dreams for your career? This like innovative idea that you have. And we identified a real mismatch uh, that when we asked people what their dreams are, what are the dreams that they've like planted and invested in this city? Uh, they're like these limitless, enormous, bold, big, bold, uh, um, amazing dreams. But too often, the dreams that we invest in from a public level, the dreams that we believe in uh, in City Hall or the state capitol uh, or Washington, D.C., are these super small, you know, microcosmic by comparison. Uh, and so our goal was to sort of uh, to, to balance that out a bit uh, by listening to people. When you come into office as a mayor, People always tell you your top two jobs are public safety and economic development. Well, those are two things that we felt like we can do fundamentally different uh, and do far better than we ever really have historically. Where economic development is concerned, what people usually mean when they say economic development uh, is finding uh, some business uh, in another state or in another city and paying them some money to come to St. Paul instead of Minneapolis or in Minnesota instead of Wisconsin or you know whatever it is. Uh, our perspective is there's an enormous amount of potential right here in our community. Uh, there's an enormous amount of opportunity right here that we are underutilizing. And so if we really are thinking about economic development, the economic prosperity and vitality of our community, uh, it would be uh, blind to not start with saying, how do we make the most of every opportunity that we have right here at home? We have people right here in St. Paul who money is working very, very well for. We have people right here in St. Paul who money is working against. One of the first things that we did was create our Office of Financial Empowerment to say, we have this whole floor full of accountants uh, whose job it is to make money work well for our city as an entity, the, the city with a capital C. Uh, we need to figure out how to transform that and translate those skills, uh, that expertise into some work to help people in our community make money work better for them. That's where a lot of this work is held. Uh, in our Office of Financial Empowerment. Uh, their kind of crowning kind of uh, work is our college-bound St. Paul, which is our initiative to start every child born in our city with $50 in a college uh, savings account. That's an amazing initiative in and of itself. Uh, research shows that children who from low and moderate income families who graduate from high school with literally like $50, $100, less than like four or $500 in a college savings account are three times more likely to, grad to go to college and when they do, they're four times more likely to graduate. And so it's not about like the amount of money. I know that $50 is unlikely to pay for a college credit or a book or a semester for that matter. But it's about kind of figuring out how as a community to cast our collective imagination a little bit further, right? And that for those children who, for whom high school graduation looks like a finish line, $50 in a college savings account is enough to sort of turn on the next light turn on the next streetlight beyond that finish line and get them started early, casting their imagination 
uh, beyond high school graduation. So what, what, what I believe, and I think what uh, those things you just described uh, portray is a, a fundamental belief that if we bet on our residents, if we bet on our local businesses, if we bet on our local workers, uh, that those bets uh, will literally win every time. So far, it's working out that way. So you just passed, I think just a few weeks ago, um, a guaranteed income pilot. We're starting to see these pop up in a lot of cities. The, ones I'm, the one I'm most familiar with is in Stockton, California, but I know there are others. Tell me a little bit more about uh, why this was important to you and what you're hoping will come of it. Uh, absolutely. You know, the, the, the goals are really twofold. The first is we know that we have people in our community who are struggling like they've never struggled before. And so our goal is to identify a cohort of low income uh, families with young children uh, who have seen their income uh, uh, reduced as a result of this pandemic and provide uh, some help to help them kind of get through weather the storm of this crisis. The second goal is our long term goal is to advance these types of policies at the state and at the federal level. So we have to contribute to our body of knowledge of how these policies work. Uh, what are the impacts of these policies? So we're working with a national team of evaluators to provide an independent third party uh, evaluation of this. Uh, what are the impacts on our local economy? What are the impacts on the family spending? What are the impacts on the family's child? Uh, so that we can uh, continue to build kind of our national uh, pool of knowledge. Our local pilot is very much patterned after uh, Stockton's mayor. Uh, mayor Michael Tubbs is a good friend and I think a really strong leader for our, 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 not just Stockton, but for our country and many of the things that he's doing. Uh, so we're patterning after theirs. Uh, we're identifying a cohort of 150, again, like I said, low-income families with very young children uh, who are participants in our college-bound college savings accounts program. Uh, they will receive a monthly benefit, uh, unconditional benefit of $500 a month for a period of 18 months. Uh, the unconditional nature of that transfer is really important. Uh, because so often when we create these policies, uh, we, we create them uh, with uh, very kind of narrow lines of what you can do. Uh, here's some money, but you can only use it for rent. Here's some money, but you can only use it for food or for only for childcare or only for uh, whatever kind of the thing is that we've set out. Every time that we do that, Jennifer, we're telling those families, we know from City Hall what's best for your family, what's best for your child, uh, better than you do. Uh, and so to say this is unconditional, it's walking this road of saying, look, we know one, uh, that what one family is challenged with right now isn't necessarily the same as what another family is right now. And particularly in this uh, uh, COVID crisis, we also know that what one family needs in September uh, could be fundamentally different than what that same family needs in October. I'll tell you, when my oldest daughter was born, uh, we were on WIC. We were a family of three on WIC, uh, nutritional supports for women, infants, and children. And anybody who knows anything about WIC uh, knows that we would leave the grocery store every two weeks uh, with more milk, more eggs, more cheese, uh, more peanut butter than we could possibly consume uh, in, a, in, in a matter of two weeks, right? The challenge is my daughter's literally was, was, was born allergic uh, to dairy, uh, to eggs, and to peanuts. And so, you know, we could get all the cow's milk we could want. We, could, we couldn't get any of the soy milk she could actually drink. Uh, we get all the eggs in the world, we get all the peanut butter we wanted, but none of the almond butter that she could actually eat. And it angered me. It was frustrating and, and, and infuriating that we're on this program where we were a family that needed help and we sought out the help that we needed. And we sort of got the help that the government wanted us to have, but it actually did not help our child. It didn't do what that program was designed to do. Yeah. Those programs, many of those programs have been redesigned uh, to, to enable families to buy like nutritional food and things like that. But we can go a lot further than that. 
we can tell families, this is an investment in you. This is an investment in your family and your child. This is an investment that knows that you know what's best for your family and we trust you to raise your family. I look forward to what we learn and I imagine that we'll learn the same thing Stockton did. And that's when low-income families have access to a little bit more cash at the end of the month. Uh, they do the same type of stuff you and I would do with it. They pay the rent, uh, they go buy groceries, uh, they fix up a car so they can get to work because uh, they're real people who have real struggles uh, and we can do a whole lot better. At the end of the day, as people ask me like, why this new approach? Uh, I like to turn the question around. I say, well, tell you what, we're 60 years, some, some 60 years into a war on poverty in America. Uh, and you know, my question will be, what would be the argument to keep on doing it the same way we've always done it? There is no argument. Uh, we've spent billions of dollars uh, on alleviating poverty and somehow uh, some 60 years later, uh, providing resources directly to low-income families still feels like a radical, strange, and unusual new idea. That's what seems strange to me. Hmm. So being a successful mayor really requires seeing citizens in all of their complexities and considering all of their needs, but you know, city government has its limits, financially and otherwise, despite you know, the incredible, bold uh, initiatives that you've been able to pull off. Who are the most important partners to bring to the table as you're trying to build an integrated financial health system for everyone in St. Paul? You know, city government certainly has its limits. Uh, we have smaller budgets and smaller reach. I think any mayor in America, especially in 2020, will tell you their biggest frustration is the number of things that we'd like to see different in our communities that even as the mayor of a major city, you can't just sort of flip a light switch or wave a magic wand uh, and see that thing magically or instantly change. Uh, it puts an onus. At the same time, though, city government has an advantage uh, in that uh, whenever someone asks me, like, what's the difference between city hall or city government and like state government or the legislature, I would tell them, if you think about like the complex issues of our day that stimulate your cerebral core, that's the legislature. Uh, but if you think about the stuff that pisses you off, uh, that's city hall. And the way I justify that <laughs> is, if you think about something that has impacted your life so immediately, uh, so intensely, so intimately uh, on your drive to work or just in the scope of like an everyday, regular everyday engagement that you involuntarily growl, that you go, mm, right? I can almost guarantee you it's a pothole. In Minnesota, it might be snow plowing. Uh, it might be a vacant building. Uh, it might be neighborhood crime. Uh, I can almost give you kind of uh, nine to one odds that to address that issue, you'd be going to city hall and not the state legislature. So that gives us an opportunity to speak a little more directly to people's lives, uh, a little more uh, intimately into kind of uh, the communities that we serve uh, and I think inspire people and engage people in a way that neither the state capital nor Washington DC uh, has the opportunity to. Uh, and so that's, a, that's an advantage that we need because in order to do the work, we have to partner. We have to partner with local universities to evaluate our work, evaluate our progress, and tell us if we're getting the outcomes that we want. We have to partner with uh, local nonprofit organizations. We have local nonprofits who have been committed uh, to helping people, you know, free tax preparation, uh, to helping people, helping employees buy a business, buy the business they work for as, a, as an employee-owned cooperative, uh, to helping people uh, figure out, you know, uh, financial planning and figure out how to save and kind of meet their goals and those types of things. So our plan, Office of Financial Empowerment it works pretty heavily with those organizations uh, locally. Uh, we work very heavily with some of the national organizations and some of the other cities from uh, San Francisco to St. Louis uh, who are committed to this same type of journey around, office of, uh, around financial empowerment. I was somewhere with one of our city council members at a conference 
uh, and we were listening to the city treasurer of St. Louis speak. Uh, and she was talking about how they created an office of financial empowerment and how they built a college savings accounts uh, program through their uh, office of financial empowerment. And the city council member looked at me and said, wow, that's an amazing coincidence. And I said, no, it's not. That's who we're copying. Right. <laughs> so uh, we work pretty closely. Right. With Jonathan Mintz, Jonathan Mintz and the city's for financial empowerment is a terrific organization. Um, yes. And uh, there is a whole group of cities uh, like St. Paul that are on a similar journey. Absolutely. That's right. And, and more every day. And I'll tell you, we learn from all of them. We learn kind of in a community. But most importantly, because St. Paul is different. Uh, than St. Louis, St. Paul is different from San Francisco, St. Paul is different from Portland and every other city on the planet. Uh, we have to listen to our community. And you know, we have to listen, not just to our business leaders and not just to our political leaders, but we have to listen kind of deeply. So when we were building the college savings accounts, uh, we spent time with just single moms and said like, like, how would this work for you? Like, how, how will we make this work best for you? We spent time uh, with dads in our community and said, how can this work best for you? We spent time with parents in our public schools, with teachers uh, and, and with young people in our community and just said like, tell us, like talk back, this is how we're thinking about this, this is how we're designing this, but talk back to us and tell us like how we make it uh, the, 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 the most useful for our community. And so, you know, we all know that there's these wide coalitions that we have to, to, to build. I think one of the things that we have to be most intentional about is identifying the people who expect us not to listen to them uh, and go intentionally listen to them go intentionally engage them, go intentionally, and, and not with the purpose that like, we're gonna tell them what we're gonna do for you, but with the purpose that they have something that we can learn from them. When I first got elected uh, mayor, one of my mentors here looked at me and said, look, you'll do fine. Just never forget that every single mom you meet, uh, every uh, stressed out grandmother you meet, uh, every worker who takes a city bus to work on every morning uh, that you meet is a subject matter expert in American life and you'll be fine. And that's the approach we try to take. Mm. So actually what it sounds like is in terms of bringing other folks to the table, it's the central lesson is really teaching them to listen. So teaching us to listen, teaching ourselves to listen. Right. Because so for instance, you need the business community at the table, but I think the mm -hmm. point you are making is I need them at the table, not because I have to just do everything that they want that I need to teach them how to listen to their own workers, to uh, their customers, to uh, the needs of the community, uh, and that then they will be in a better position to be real partners and collaborators. And I use the private sector as an example, but I could have said that about, about anything. I could say it about local colleges and universities. Yeah. I can say it about the healthcare system. Uh, I could say it about other All nonprofit organizations um, that really you're really on a you're on a you're on a uh, uh, on a mission to get people to listen differently and listen to different people. Without a doubt, there's a book that I love uh, called Street Fight, and it's about just the way we reprogram uh, our public right of ways as like a public space uh, for people to gather and for people to interact and not just for like cars to drive through. Um, and there's a concept called desire lines that I'm really passionate about. And I'll try to say this briefly, but the concept is, uh, so for example, um, I graduated from one of our largest high schools here in St. Paul. And it's a high school on a corner and the dwarf kind of faces the street. Uh, and for the past uh, hundred years, there's been sort of a cow path uh, 
uh, that the students, when they, instead of walking up to the corner and walking around and then coming back up the stairs, they cut across the grass. There's been a cow path there for, uh, for literally a hundred years probably. And just a few years ago, uh, someone was smart enough to say, hey, why don't we pave this and you know, build and create a sidewalk here? And that's such a common sense thing to say, but it points to how we do public policy too often. Uh, we create our public policy, we create our public systems in these like square corners and ask people to uh, behave in ways that everyone knows makes no sense. Fundamentally speaking, especially in the snow, it makes no sense to walk all the way up and walk around the corner and come back around when you can just cut across here. Instead of asking people, what makes sense? What would work for you? What would, what would work best for your life in the way that you engage and experience community and building our sidewalks where they're walking, where they're going? That's what we can do when we listen in a new way. I'll tell you, I don't feel like the teacher. I feel like I'm someone who's learning this alongside all of us. And so the way we do our public engagement, uh, we have, I always call them three-dimensional engagement. Uh, one of my staff members has a big word, transcendent. I don't know what he calls it. Um, but, um, we, you know, the, the goal is for people to hear from me, you deserve, I'm your mayor. You deserve to hear from me. The truth is nobody's suffering from a shortage of hearing from me these days, but in order for me to be most informed, uh, in what I say, I need to hear from you, right? I need to hear from our community members, but the same principle applies in order for you to be most informed in what you tell me, you have to hear from your neighbors. You have to hear from somebody uh, who, who lives in a different part of town or you know, is a different age or a different culture, a different gender for you. So our goal isn't to sort of center me at the center. Uh, we have events all the time where people go, I thought you were gonna give a speech. And I go, no, I'm not, isn't it great? Like we're all gonna have a conversation with one another and we're all gonna learn from each other. We're all gonna build a truth uh, kind of together uh, that we're gonna own together and we're gonna walk this road together. Uh, that's how we've established our college savings accounts. That's how we raise the minimum wage. Uh, that's how we're building our kind of guaranteed income pilot. Uh, that's the future of our city. That's the, that's, that's, that's the big bet for our city. Uh, the biggest idea that I try to bring into City Hall is not only the mayor gets to have big ideas. Mayor Carter, thanks so much for joining us on Emerge Everywhere. Thank you very much. I appreciate you having me on. This has been Emerge Everywhere, a Financial Health Network production. I'm Jennifer Tesher, and I'd love to hear your ideas for future guests and your reactions to the show. You can connect with me on Twitter at Jen Tesher. If you liked this episode, please review the show and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about the work and research we do, please visit emerge.finhealthnetwork.org. See you next time.